0: Christmas. Whoa. <laughs> Let's try that again. How's that? That's too low now. Isn't it? Okay. Christmas is the culmination of a long expectation. Right? Think about other holidays that we celebrate. We don't count down the days to Thanksgiving like we count down to Christmas. right? We don't have We don't have the 4th of July equivalent of an Advent calendar, right? Where you have a little thing you do every day or something like that. Uh, Christmas is unique in that way. There's a unique focus, long-term focus, unique element of expectation that goes along with Christmas. And though the retail stores profit from that focus, that long focus uh, on Christmas, they did not create it. The Old Testament story, the whole thing is building up towards and anticipating the birth of Christ, which is what Christmas is all about. So in the Old Testament, we have not just days, but centuries of expectation, of anticipation about the birth of Christ. So what we're going to do Starting today and over the next few weeks, Lord willing, is we are going to focus on uh, four women in the Bible whose stories lead up to and point toward the birth of Christ. Today we're going to start with Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, who gave birth to Isaac, a long-awaited promised son who would continue the line Uh, from which the Messiah would come. Next week, again, Lord willing, we will look uh, to the book of Ruth and focus on Naomi, a woman whose troubles began and ended in a little town called Bethlehem. We will look uh, the following week at a woman named Hannah, another woman who was barren, but who God opened her womb and granted her a son, And her prayer, rejoicing in the birth of her son, uh, is really the model for Mary's magnificent prayer that we call the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. And then on the Sunday before Christmas, so for the fourth Sunday, we'll focus on Mary and look at that beautiful prayer of praise that Mary prays, echoing Hannah's prayer uh, in there in Luke chapter 1. So this morning, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 11, We'll be looking at selected verses uh, from Genesis 11 through 18. And we start in Genesis 11 because that's where the story of Abraham and Sarah begins. Almost the first thing that we learn about Sarah, who at this time was called Sarai, but I'm just going to call her Sarah for simplicity's sake, Almost the first thing we learn about Sarah after we're told that she uh, was Abram's wife is we learn that she was barren in verse 30 of Genesis 11. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, in order for that statement to land on us with the appropriate biblical weight we need to understand something about the story that has taken place up to this point. In the beginning, when God created everything and He made everything good, one of the first blessings He spoke was in Genesis 1.28. He just made the man and the woman, made them in His image. And in Genesis 1.28 it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's first blessing spoken to the man and the woman whom he made in his image, his first blessing was the, uh, about the blessing of having children, of being fruitful, of multiplying. All right, so this is a part, childbearing, marriage, is a part of God's good creation. And even after the fall, God speaks of uh, children and childbearing as a blessing. In Psalm 127, verse 3 and 4, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And then in the very next Psalm, Psalm 128, Also verse 3 and 4, it says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. But there is also a significant shift that takes place after the fall. When Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, when they sin, that wreaks havoc on the good creation that God has made,, right? and uh, God speaks a curse on the creation right there's going to be thorns and thistles now springing up from the ground, and one of the things that God says in this curse in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin is in Genesis three sixteen where he says, "I will surely he speaks this to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain shall you bring forth children right, so Uh, Her marriage is affected uh, as well in the curse, but also uh, childbearing becomes. uh, remains a blessing, but it also becomes a very painful experience for the woman. Now, not every aspect of the curse, of the effects of the fall, are spelled out in Genesis 3. Some of them we have to sort of piece together for ourselves. It's very clear that the thorns and thistles... That's part of it, right? It's very clear that conflict in marriage is part of it. It's very clear that death is one of the consequences of sin and the fall. But we can also uh, sort of infer from all of that, uh, everything else that destroys, that is damaging, that is not good, uh, that brings pain, is also a consequence of the fall. So natural disasters, not mentioned in Genesis 3, but very clearly a part of the fall, right? Sicknesses, disease, cancer, all the host of things that uh, can ravage our bodies. All of those things are a part of the fall. And so it's no stretch to say that Sarah's barrenness, her inability to have children, which is a good gift, a blessing, having children, Sarah's barrenness is a consequence of the fall. Now, it's not a consequence of her sin. It's a consequence of sin in general. Sin coming into the world through Adam and Eve. Just like if you get cancer, right, that's not because you sinned, but it is a resu- it's a consequence of sin in the world. right? It's a result of the fall. So, Sarah's barrenness, right, which in some ways is at least as painful as childbirth, if not more painful than childbirth, Right? Because when you're barren, you have the pain that comes along with seeing everybody else able to bear children while you're not able. Right? You have to rejoice with them while you are grieving. Right? You have to be happy for them while you are struggling with anger or envy or discontentment or whatever. We see this as well in the Bible. And one of the women we'll look at later, uh, the woman named Hannah, who shows up in First Samuel. She had not just a sister-in-law or a sister or a co-worker or a friend who was fruitful while she was barren. Her husband had a second wife who was fruitful while she was barren. Already a bad situation, plus she can't have kids, and the other wife can. So here's what the Bible says happened in 1 Samuel 1, 6 and 7. It says, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So the pain of barrenness is at least as bad as the pain of childbearing, if not worse, because it is so persistent. So Sarah has married Abraham, and she is barren, which in that time, in that culture, means basically they have no they have no children to take care of them as they grow old. They have no legacy to leave behind when when they die. That's it, right? They, the what they long to do is to to leave their name through their children, which is what we long to do as well. We have ways, you know, sometimes to uh, we can adopt or we can you know do different things. Uh, they didn't really have that option, right? So here they are; they're barren, and they are no doubt uh, grieving over this, distressed by this. And the reason I spend so much time on this is to say this, this is this is an early part of the story leading up to Christmas. Right? This is a part of how Jesus is going to come into the world. is through Abraham and Sarah through their line, and so I spend some time on this to say the real Christmas story in the Bible is not like so many of the Christmas cards and Christmas movies and whatnot that paint a picture of Christmas where everybody's happy and everybody's healthy and everyone's fine because it's Christmas, right? Reality is, sometimes at Christmas your heart is breaking. Sometimes at Christmas you're sick. Sometimes at Christmas you're scared. Sometimes at Christmas someone's dying. And the Bible, the biblical story of Christmas, looks all of our suffering straight in the face and says, God is going to do something about that. Christmas is about the fact that that God is going to deal with the suffering and brokenness and heartache that we have brought into the world through sin. He's going to do something about it. That's why He's working through Abraham and Sarah. That's why He called them in the first place. And He called a woman who was barren to be the one... To bring in the first son in a line of promised sons that would culminate in the ultimate promised son, Jesus, to show us that there was nothing going to stand in his way to bring this to pass. So, the next thing that happens in the story, right, after God calls Abraham and Sarah, he makes them a series of promises. He promises them land, he promises them blessing, he promises them. Offspring, right? In Genesis chapter 12, he promises them all those things. The land of Canaan is going to be yours. I'm going to make you a great nation, which implies lots of children. Right? He says, I'm going to give your offspring this land. So again, they're going to have children somehow. And he says, I'm not only going to bless you, I'm going to bless the people who bless you. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. That's how I'm going to restore my blessing to creation that has had a setback because of the curse that came as a result of sin. I'm going to bless the world, Abraham, through you and through your wife. And the way I'm going to do that is through your offspring. Well, eight, nine, almost ten years go by. Abraham and Sarah don't have any offspring, they don't have any children. Abraham is struggling in Genesis 15 to believe God's promise. He says, you know, if I were to die right now, this guy Eliezer, just one of the guys in my household, would be my heir. You you haven't given me yet a real heir. God assures him, I will, he says, look at the stars. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And Abraham believes him. Right? And God counts that to him as righteousness. Well, They're waiting, they're waiting. Genesis chapter 16, Sarah gets tired of waiting and she takes matters into her own hands. Says, look, I obviously can't have children. God said he's going to give us children. I can't have children, but I've got this woman, Hagar, who's my servant. Why don't you take her and maybe you and her can conceive a child and then that'll be our offspring. That's my plan. Abraham goes along with the plan. It's a bad plan at multiple levels, right? I mean, multiple levels, this is a bad idea. Abraham goes along with it. Sure enough, Hagar conceives, has a child. Guess what? Hagar now looks differently upon her mistress. I can have babies and you can't. Right? I'm the slave, but hey, I get to have the child. Sarah gets mad at Abraham. You know, can you believe this? Look, look at what's happening. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abraham is probably like, uh, I'm not going to say it, but this was your idea, you know? Uh, it goes badly all around, right? It goes badly all around. She has a son. His name is Ishmael. Abraham loves this son. Abraham wants God to bless this son. But God tells Abraham, This is not the son I was talking about. This is not the son that I promised you. I will bless him for your sake, but this is not the promised son. He doesn't get the full inheritance that I told you that I'm going to give to you, which I'm going to pass on to your sons. This is not him. Sarah's story with Hagar reminds us of the danger of trying to do God's work for him instead of waiting for God to do his work in his time. Uh, he's given us things to do that we should do. Uh, when I say wait, I don't mean do nothing. right? He's given us things that we are supposed to do. But there are also things that He has promised He will do. And sometimes we get it into our heads that either God can't or God won't or God isn't doing it on my, t- my timeline, my terms... And so I'll just do it for him. And if you've ever tried to do that, you've no doubt learned what Sarah and Abraham learned, which is that always backfires on you. It never goes well. God does not ask us to do his work for him. God tells us to wait and trust him, and he will do his work in his time. Right, so don't try to force his hand. Right, you can pray, and you can plead, you can ask, but sometimes God might say, Wait. Sometimes he might say, not yet. Sometimes he might say, I'm going to do that. I'm just not going to do it yet. So do what he's called you to do, but wait for him to do what he's promised. Don't try to take it into your own hands. Well, another period of time goes through another 13 years or so. At this point, it's been, I think, roughly 25 years from what the scripture tells us since God first called Abraham and Sarah promised them offspring. It's been a quarter of a century, right? And w- when this started, they were already fairly old, right? Fairly up in their years. Now they really are, right? Abraham's knocking on the door of a hundred, and they still don't have a child. In Genesis chapter 18, God appears to Abraham, and he brings with him a couple of angels. They, they come as three men, but we're told that one of them is the Lord and two of them are angels who, who go on in the next chapter to, to check on Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of them is the Lord and the Lord speaks to Abraham and in Genesis 18 verse 9. It says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have... A son. And so now God has narrowed it down. He said, I wasn't talking about you and Hagar. That's not the son I was talking about. I was talking about you and Sarah. And I promised you that you were gonna have a son. Now I'm telling you, within the, about the next year, now now is the time. I'm going to give you a son. And it says in the middle of verse 10, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So that's a polite way of saying, not only is she barren, but just biologically, she's not able to have children anymore. So this is doubly impossible from a natural human perspective. There's just no hope left, humanly speaking, of Sarah being able to have a child. So how does Sarah respond? Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You're saying I'm going to have a kid now? After all this? There's no way. It seems ridiculous to Sarah. Impossible to Sarah. As it probably would have seemed to us, right? If we were in her shoes. Verse 13 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard? For the Lord, Or you might have a note like I do that says, literally, it's, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too amazing for the Lord? Is anything so uh, just beyond what you can imagine being possible that you think God can't do it? Do you think God can't do this? Do you think I can't give you a son? Do you think I can't open a womb that's dead and barren and bring life out of it? We know that He can. Right? And the reason we know that He can is because He's the one who spoke everything into existence in the first place. If He can speak creation into existence, if He can create life out of nothing, then surely He can create life out of one barren womb. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. But let's not be too hard on Sarah. Right? Have you ever given up on something you've been praying for? Have you ever given up hope on something you thought... You know, there was a time when I thought God could, would do something about this, but I just, I just, don't, I just don't think it could happen anymore. It's too late. The situation's too far gone. The person's too far gone. You know, what, whatever it is. Most of us have probably been there at some point, right? Someone, something, some situation we've prayed for for a long time. And at some point, we're, just, <clears throat> we're honest with people and we just say, you know, I just don't know anymore. I don't pray about that much anymore. Um, I mean, God could do something, I guess, you know. But I just—I've given up hope that He will. That's where Sarah was, right? We can sympathize with her, right? But when we're in that position, we need to learn from her mistake as well, right? <clears throat> Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Sometimes it's possible that God is waiting as he did with Abraham and Sarah, he's waiting until everybody thinks he can't do anything about it now. So that he can then do something about it and show that he can do what nobody thought he could do. <coughs> Excuse me. So, he gives Abraham and Sarah a son, we know, Isaac, whose name means laughter. <coughs> and somebody said God gets the last laugh. Right? Sarah laughed about the idea of having a son in her old age. So she got a son named Laughter, because God's laughing, because he can do whatever he wants. (coughs) Excuse me. So, they have the son named Isaac. From Isaac's line comes the Messiah, Jesus. At the end, from Abraham comes Isaac. Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob comes Judah. From Judah comes David. From David comes the Messiah. God kept his promise. And not only the story not only points to Jesus because from this line would come the Messiah, but also because of the similarities between the stories. <clears throat> Jesus was likewise born after a long wait, just like Isaac was. He was likewise born in fulfillment of God's promise, just like Isaac was. He was likewise born of a woman who by every natural expectation should not have been pregnant in the first place. And Jesus was likewise born to bring God's blessing into the world. He purchased those blessings for the world by his death on the cross, by his resurrection. If you put your trust in him, if you turn from your sin to him, it's through him that God will bless you and forgive you and give you life. We relive and re-experience the expectation of Jesus' birth every year at Christmas. But now, our expectation, our real expectation, is focused forward. Because Jesus has already come, but he's also coming back. When he returns, he will bring us into the fullness of the blessings that he purchased for us on the cross. For every believer, there will be no more death, sorrow, pain, mourning, or any part of the curse. Instead, there will be life and joy forever in the presence of God who has kept every promise. And for that, there is reason to give thanks. Let's.